Our study of Genesis 49 is basically a study of the distant future and the near future, distant and near, relatively speaking. When we consider this prophecy of Israel or Jacob, we're seeing both the near future, that is within the period of time after Jacob, between Moses and then his successors, what will happen to the tribes. That's explained here. But the more distant future, which also entails eternity, is the focal point of verses 8 to 12 in his blessing on Judah. Because within the Judahite blessing is the messianic blessing, the Christological prophecy, which relates to the distant future in time, but also all eternity, those who are rightly related to Christ. Uh, That would be the basic way to understand this chapter. And then by the end of the chapter, the fact that he dies, Jacob dies by the end of it. Okay, so this is his last oracle or prophecy. Genesis 49, 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation, I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid 
at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Mach- in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This last oracle of Israel or Jacob, remember these are two names of the same patriarch and they become two names of the same nation, both the physical nation and also the spiritual nation, the redeemed, are often in scripture called Israel and or Jacob. But this patriarch, before he dies, he summons his sons. He has 12 sons and daughters, but the 12 sons being the heirs He assembles them together to pronounce a blessing on them. We know it is a blessing because in 49.28 it says that he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Each of these received a blessing, but in the midst of the blessing there is some punishment or some cursing going on. It's both a blessing and a cursing at the same time. We'll see this is quite evident, at least with the first two, with Reuben and then Simeon and Levi who are together. It is evident there. Now this blessing, as we have said before in our study of Genesis, it's not merely a layman's blessing, which has its place. These are patriarchal and prophetic blessings. They do involve the patriarchs who received the promises of God, especially the promise of Christ coming through their lineage, That's the patriarchal part. And then the prophetic part, they are men inspired by the Holy Spirit to pronounce these prophecies or oracles, words from God. They are prophetic. 
The prophetic part is evident in verse 1 when he says that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. How does Jacob know what is going to befall him in the days to come? Because God is telling him, God, through his Holy Spirit, inspires him to pronounce these prophecies. And as we check the prophecies and their fulfillments, we will see that there is no way this patriarch knew them based on human knowledge. There is no way, absolutely no way. And further, we know that he was a prophet according to Psalm 105, 8 to 15. Psalm 105, verses 8 to 15, which mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them by name. And then in verse 15, it says, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Do my prophets no harm. Therefore, Jacob is pronouncing these words as a prophecy. And then verse 2, he gathers them together to hear a word from their father, who is both patriarch and prophet. And in this way, too, they have witnesses. If they are all gathered and they hear these pronouncements on each one, then they know it's an authoritative word of God through their father, and they are all eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of what is being said. They cannot dispute it. It is authoritative, and they must live with whatever is said. This will especially apply when it has to do with inheritance and who receives what inheritance and where. They have to listen to these words from their father. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. And then we live with the consequences of what the sentence or the verdict is. So now, the verdict or the pronouncement. What exactly is going to happen? Remember in our introduction, we said that primarily we have with the other tribes pronouncements about how they are going to live or where they are going to live in the land of Canaan. When Jacob is pronouncing these words, his tribe or his clan, they are living in Egypt. And therefore, based on the promises of God earlier in the book of Genesis, he anticipates them becoming a mighty nation, numerous people to live in the land of Canaan. And when that day eventually comes, this is what they should do and would do. Though it is primarily focused on that, it's not exclusively focused on that because there is a spiritual component to each of these oracles, to each tribe, but especially so with the tribe of Judah in verses 8 to 12. We'll see that. Now, first, verses 3 to 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. When he says this about his firstborn and the preeminence of the firstborn, he is acknowledging what was true. He's acknowledging what was true. And he acknowledges it not only to express what's true, but what is going to be stripped away from him. Because in Deuteronomy 21.17, Deuteronomy 21.17, it explains the inheritance that ought to be received by the firstborn. Deuteronomy 21.17, But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved. 
by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. That phrase, the beginning of his strength, is used, and that is the phrase we find also in Genesis 49.3. Reuben is the beginning of his strength. And therefore, what should Reuben typically receive? He should receive a double portion, a double inheritance in the land of Canaan. However, that's not going to happen. That's in verse 4. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Uncontrolled, without self-control. That's what he means. As water often is without self-control, and it moves and goes and rushes wherever it wants to go. And it's very hard to stop it. In that sense, that analogy, that's the way Reuben was with his own passions. Now he's talking about the spiritual um, life or degenerate life of Reuben at the time he committed his adultery. Verse 4, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. This happened in Genesis 35, 22. Genesis 35, 22. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. He not only heard of it, but he made note of it in order to curse him here by stripping away the double portion. Instead of a double portion, he would receive a single portion. We know this to be the case in Joshua 13, 15 to 23, which details the parts of the land of Canaan he or his tribe inherited. Joshua 13, 15 to 23. He received a single portion. So then, who received the double portion? That was Joseph. Joseph received it. Also notice in... First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Not only did Joseph receive the double portion, but the particular blessing of leadership of the clan would not be in the tribe of Reuben, but in the tribe of Judah, which what we read in First Chronicles is based on the narratives we are studying in the book of Genesis. For example, First Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now the double portion birthright to Joseph This was already expressed in chapter 48. In chapter uh, 48, that he, Jacob, or Israel, adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. He adopted them not to be his literal sons day by day in that sense, but so that they would receive the legal inheritance. Instead of Joseph receiving one territory, he would receive two named after Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why in the tribal allotments of the territory in Canaan, Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned and not Joseph. 
because Joseph is represented in those two sons. The double portion taken away from Reuben, so he only gets a single, and the double given to Joseph through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verses 5 to 7. He turns his attention to the second and third born sons. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now this he means not only with the same father, but the same mother, Leah. This we could read about in Genesis chapter 29. Um, so they are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. When did they commit this violence? In Genesis 34. Remember that their sister, Dina, was raped by Shechem, the son uh, or one of the natives of the city of Shechem. And in retaliation, Simeon and Levi secretly and maliciously plotted to slaughter the inhabitants of the town. And they did, all the males of the town. And their retaliation was excessive. The just penalty that the man should have received, they did not inflict that merely on him, but they put the rest of the town under a curse when it was invalid. It was excessive. And nothing except a confrontation or a confrontational rebuke was made by Jacob at the time, but here now is their punishment. Their punishment? Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Here he tells us more explicitly that he entirely disagreed with what they did. Right. He did not agree with it whatsoever. And they are now cursed. Now they're cursed because it's wrong. They're also cursed because they slew men, meaning innocent men. The many innocent men in the town did nothing, and yet they were killed. And also, they lamed oxen. Well, what did the oxen do? And aren't oxen valuable creatures, domestic creatures? If, you, if they are domesticated, right, they can be of value. Well, why kill them or lame them? Why handicap them? And that's because they were excessive. Proverbs 12.10, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Proverbs 12.10. And even in Jonah 4.11, Shall I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left? as well as many animals. God has compassion on men and animals, but these men in their sinful rage did not. So then he puts a curse on them. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. What's the consequence of the curse? I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In what way did he disperse and scatter them? Well, in their descendants. Instead of Simeon receiving a separate inheritance, 
he received an inheritance in the middle of the tribe of Judah and quickly and eventually, quickly he was disregarded because Judah was all around and then eventually he was submerged or uh, assimilated with the Judahites and so there is no distinction with Simeon anymore. Eventually in history, hundreds of years later, but it did happen that way. That's what happened to Simeon. If you check a map of the conquest under the time of Joshua, you will see that Judah receives a portion in the southern part of Canaan, and in the middle of Judah is Simeon's inheritance. This is described also in Joshua 19, 1-9. Joshua 19, 1-9. What about Levi? Levi, they were scattered to live in 48 cities dispersed throughout the land of Israel. And they too did not receive a territory or vast territory, an allotment. And why so? Because of this right here. In Joshua chapter 21, basically almost the whole chapter, 21, 1 to 42, the cities are identified, the 48 Levitical cities in Joshua chapter 21. That's how they were scattered, so that they don't have a single, unique, permanent identity. In fact, we'll see that for the rest of the Bible, in the prophets, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, and in the rest of Scripture, which tribes are usually mentioned in reference to the people. It's usually just two. Just two. That is Judah and then Joseph represented in Ephraim. Usually Ephraim. It's usually those two that are referenced. Either in the physical sense or more importantly in the spiritual sense. If God is going to use an endearing term to describe his redeemed people... He will call them Judah or Zion or Jerusalem. He'll call them a name like that or even Ephraim. Like Jeremiah 31, 7 to 9, when he's preaching the remnant, he says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is my son and I have made him my firstborn. So even though Ephraim was not naturally, historically the firstborn, in terms of a father enduring his son... He says, Ephraim is my firstborn. The redeemed Ephraim. And that's because God chose Judah and Joseph. Those were the two main tribes and patriarchs for the blessings of Israel. Not the rest of them. They have their place, but not as prominent as these other two. Now, verses 8 to 12. This blessing on Judah is to be taken in a primarily messianic or Christological way. Messianic or Christological way. Because it does not primarily speak about what he does or what he inherits in the land of Israel. But only by implication or assumption If we assume the spiritual part, we can understand why the physical part ended up being the way it did. Okay, so let's have a spiritual lens 
on this interpretation, verses 8 to 12. Spiritual meaning Christological. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Now, when in history do we find that Judah's brothers praised him? When do we find that? It's hard to find a time except during the monarchy of the southern kingdom, but there is nothing explicitly there about it. We do know his inheritance is listed in uh, Joshua 15. Joshua 15, the whole chapter. His territory is mentioned. He does receive territory. But when do his brothers praise him? And why would they praise him? When and why would they praise him? Uh, Before we leave that or answer that question, there are um, puns here. Puns. Puns, P-U-N. Puns that are throughout this chapter. And this is one of them, one of the more obvious ones. Judah, the the name from Genesis 29.35, it means praise. And here it says, your brothers shall praise you. Your brothers shall praise you. And even the shortened form in the New Testament, Jude or Judas, it comes from this name. Judah, praise. And so when would the brothers praise him and why? I think the answer is in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is why. And we already read from 1 Chronicles 5, verse 2, that the leader, or the prince, was to come from Judah. Come from Judah. But not just a dynasty, a long-lasting dynasty, for hundreds of years, not even the Davidic dynasty in and of itself, but the Davidic dynasty insofar as it is the source of the kingdom of Christ, the eternal kingdom of Christ. That's the reason why the rest of the tribes or the peoples would praise Judah. Not because he would become the name of a nation, nothing like that, but because Christ would come from him and those who know Christ would Praise Christ and God's plans and promises. And furthermore, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The enemies will be defeated. When did Judah or Judah's tribes ever defeat all the enemies? They never did. In fact, they were at war most of the time. Only during the time of King Solomon did they not have war. There was conflict in the time of Solomon, but not warfare with foreign nations. That's the only time. So in what sense shall your hand be on the neck of your enemies? Unless it's spiritual enemies. Spiritual enemies like sin, death, the world, and Satan. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Well, why would they bow down to Judah, the patriarch? No, they would bow down to Judah only if it is in Christ or Christ. And that is true because we know in Matthew 28, 9 that the disciples worshipped him, it says. And before his ascension in Luke 24, 52, it says that they worshipped him. And then 
he was lifted up out of their, or while he was being lifted up out of their sight, they were worshiping him. Verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? He is a lion. He's compared to a lion. This explains why in Revelation 5.5, Christ is called the lion, which is from the tribe of Judah. The lion from the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5. And that God might be compared to a lion should not surprise us, even though it is a wild animal. Its wildness is not the reason... God or Christ is compared to a lion, but its strength, its unmatched strength is the reason and the strength to do whatever it wants to do. Hosea 5.14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. That is the Lord as a lion to punish, punishing even Judah and Ephraim, the unbelieving kingdoms. Further, Hosea 13, Hosea 13, 7 and 8. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. This is God acting as a lion. It should not be a surprise, therefore, that Judah, or Christ, coming from the tribe of Judah, is described as a lion. Now, if we think that that is far-fetched, let's turn our attention to verse 10, and we'll make a couple of points here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter or the ruler's staff, meaning the the authority of kingship and rulership, will not depart from Judah. Well, won't depart from Judah until what time? Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh here is best taken as a proper name. A proper name. Proper name of a personal name, not a proper name of a geographical name, which that is the case too. Shiloh was a city or a town in the northern part of, the, of Canaan. It was that, but here it's a reference to a person. If your Bible does not have it capitalized and in reference to a person, uh, it may seek to minimize the messianic implications of this personal name by putting it as a pronoun, until he comes, or until it comes, or something like that. Uh, Some kind of alteration in the translation. Um, One might be, until he comes to Shiloh or until he comes to whom it belongs. But even if they minimize it and just make it a personal pronoun, until he comes, 
we still have to ask, who is the he? And if one is averse to prophecy, then he would say, well, it's just talking about a possible future dynasty coming from Judah. And that's it, vaguely. But it has to be more than that. It has to be more than that because at the end of verse 10, to him, and the H of him should be capitalized if you have a Bible that does so, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The obedience of the peoples. Well, there was no king in Israel who had the nations of the world obeying them. And God never told anyone in Israel, no king in Israel, to conquer the world. Only to conquer Canaan and then to ward off and put off, withstand the enemies that would come around them and encroach on their territory. But otherwise, they were never told to conquer Go, go into Europe and go into Africa, go into uh, Asia, Central Asia, and go conquer those parts of the world. God never told them to do that. But how is it that this one is going to have the peoples of the world obey him? It has to be messianic and Christological. Okay, having said so, we take Shiloh to be a personal name, a proper noun, which is a personal name. That's number one. And the name may mean peaceable or quiet. It may mean that. Now, that this is not a distortion of Christian interpretation from the apostles or in the medieval period or in the modern period, whatever. To prove that this is not a distortion of Christian interpreters, we have two sources Two ancient sources, actually more than two, but let me mention two main sources that are indisputably pre-apostolic. Pre-apostolic, which means the apostles did not invent any of this. Because liberals and skeptics of the Bible say the apostles and the successors of the apostles throughout church history, we have distorted the pages of the Old Testament. Let's prove that. Disprove that. One, you've heard of the Qumranic fragments, the Qumranic scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, correct? You've heard of them. Um, Many of them, most of them, the the majority of them, predate the time of the apostles, before the time of the apostles. They are sometime between 250 B.C. to A.D. 70. The apostles were from A.D. 30 to 70 and John uh, beyond till 95. But this document called, it, this is what scholars call it, they call it 4Q252. 4Q. 4 means cave number 4. Q means that Qumran. 252, this is the document, and it's got a numerical sequence. So 252, this one document, number 252, in column 5, for those of you who want to check this, 4Q252, column 5, it says this, I'm quoting, quote, Until the Messiah of righteousness comes, the branch of David. And they're commenting on this verse. They say this, quote, Until the Messiah of righteousness comes, comma, the branch of David, unquote. 
and they are referring to this verse. It's indisputable that they are talking about this verse because in that document and many of the documents at Qumran, they would quote a part of scripture and add a phrase or words explanatory as they're making their point or proving their point. And that's what they're doing in this one from Qumran, predating the apostles. Also, the Targums of, of the Jews, the Targums are Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Aramaic Targums, the three Targums on the book of Genesis, all of them take this verse to be Messiah, to be the Christ. All of them take it, this verse to be a reference to Christ. Now, of course, the problem with most of the Jews is, though the verses are Christological, Messianic, they just deny that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled them. That is their problem. That is their sin. Not that these are not Messianic. They know that they are Messianic. Enough of them know. Enough of their scholars know. They are Messianic. They just don't want to say Jesus fulfilled these. Now, that Jesus did fulfill this, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The obedience of the peoples. Well, we have this phraseology applied to the peoples or the nations in the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 5. Romans 1, 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. They are the peoples, the peoples of the earth. And also Romans 16. Romans 16, 26. 16, 26. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith among the nations. That's the same sentiment point being made here in Genesis 49.10, fulfilled in Christ. Further, description of Christ, verses 11 and 12. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. In Zechariah 9.9, it says that he will come riding on the foal of a donkey. It says that in Zechariah 9.9, and that this is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21.2. It's fulfilled in Matthew 21. But when he came riding on a donkey, what did that signify? It signified lowliness, humility. Yes, it... It was a king riding on a donkey, but those who were more lavish and wealthy kings, those who were powerful kings in terms of the world's eyes, they rode on horses. And yes, Christ does ride on horses too, like in Revelation 19. But when he entered Jerusalem in Matthew 21, as prophesied here and in Zechariah 9.9, he was entering in humility to show that he was coming to humble himself, become obedient 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2 says, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, especially verses 5 to 8 of Philippians 2, that he took upon himself the form of a man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient and the obedience of death on a cross. That's why he entered Jerusalem like that on a donkey. But also, he is powerful. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. This, it could signify one of two things. Either this is signifying that he might drench his garments in the blood of vengeance, which would be true, such as Isaiah 63, 1, and 6, 1 to 6. Christ is described in Isaiah 63, 1 to 6, as having conquered his enemies and his garments are blood-stained, completely drenched in blood because he's destroyed all of his enemies. This would be just like Revelation 19, 11 to 21, when he returns... What does it say about his return in Revelation 19? It describes him as treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Figuratively speaking, when Jesus treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, wouldn't you, if you were treading in a winepress, have your garments stained by the blood of the grapes, by the juice of the grapes. In the Bible, it's called the blood of grapes, right? So here he's doing so because he's conquered his enemies. That may be what he means here. The alternative would be that he's talking about his death for redemption. His death in redemption. Because in that sense, he had bloody garments, he had a bloody body, in order to pay for our sins. It's His blood. The humility of the first part of verse 11 would go with the humility of the second part of verse 11. Then, verse 12. His eyes are dull from wine and His teeth white from milk. It seems that in this verse, we should take the alternative in your footnotes, which would read, His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. His eyes darker than wine, and teeth whiter than milk. And the eyes being dark, darker than wine, it would not mean uh, the white of our eye, but the center, the dark eyes in that sense, if it's going to be taken in a positive way. Now, the reason for a positive interpretation of seeing Christ, it would be to see His beauty. His beauty. And that the beauty or the handsomeness of the kings were noted. We might consult examples. In 1 Samuel 9, 2, Saul is said to be handsome. In 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 18... And 1742, David is said to be handsome and ruddy, handsome and ruddy, having a a good glow 
and uh, complexion on his skin. Then, in Isaiah 33, connecting this to Christ, that Christ is the one to whom we should look. Isaiah 33, 17. Isaiah 33, 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Our eyes, the eyes of the saved, the redeemed, will see the king. And NASB capitalizes king and his, his beauty. Who is this king? It has to be Christ. Read further to verse 21, 21 and 22. But there the majestic one, the Lord, shall be for us a place of rivers and wide canals, on which no boat with oars shall go, and on which no mighty ship shall pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. He will save us. This has to be Christ in Isaiah 40, uh, 33. 17 and 33, 21 to 22. Christ. So in that sense, Christ is beautiful because of the redemption that's found in him. And he presents or gives to us eternal life. That's why we see a far distant land. It's not talking about longing to go back to Canaan or live in the land of Canaan. But the far distant land is the heavenly city, the heavenly country. We long for that. Hebrews eleven eight to 16. And this interpretation of the handsomeness or beauty of the Christ is evident in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that renders the first clause in that way too. In verse 12. So, this is an old interpretation that may well suit its meaning. Now, let's proceed to verses 13 to 26. 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Zebulun is mentioned in Joshua 19, 10 to 16, where his territory is described, the cities, the places that entail that. And it was near the seashore, but not exactly at the seashore. It was near, miles away, but it was in that region where he would have easy and quick access. The Phoenicians would live right there at the edge of the Mediterranean. They would live there, and then right after them would be the tribe of Zebulun. And therefore, he would have access and be happy for the ships that arrive on the seacoast because they are usually merchant ships and you can buy and sell. That shows that he would have prosperity, uh, industry, trade in that area. And that would also be a fertile area, both for its fertility and for its um, trade. Verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. 
being a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds, this may describe Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, living in also a fertile territory in the northern region and being involved in the care of herds and cattle. That's why it says lying down between the sheepfolds. He would be an expert in, in that. Though his place was a good place, a fertile, plush, lush area, what happens soon? Whatever they do there, they're not using their abundance for good because by the end of verse 15, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor because the enemies, foreign enemies came and eventually conquered Issachar and, and other ones, other territories in the north, such as the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the main enemy that obliterated the northern kingdom, and Issachar was in the north. Another one, verses 16 to 18. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Dan as a judge for his people. First his territory described in Joshua 19, 40 to 48. Joshua 19, 40 to 48. Dan will be the smallest of the tribes both in number and amount of territory allotted to him, the smallest of them. Yet, it would have significance as one of the tribes of Israel. The most famous Danite is in Judges chapter 13. Judges 13 to 16. Samson. Samson is the most famous Danite. And... That was a, a time when some victory came to Israel in the time of Samson. But whatever was gained was forfeited. And who was one of the main causes? The tribe of Dan. Because in Judges 17 and 18, the tribe of Dan, they came, they were uprooted from their allotment in the southwestern part of Canaan. And by this time in Judges 17 and 18, they go to the house of one Micah, the Ephraimite, not Micah the prophet, but Micah the Ephraimite in Judges 17. And they see that he has this wealthy man, Micah the Ephraimite, has a priest, he has a shrine, he has idols. And so they kidnap the priest, they steal the idols. Micah the, the Ephraimite objects to it. And they say, well, what are you going to do, basically? Yeah. We're, we're a tribe. We're here. We are warriors. What are you going to do? And basically, Micah gave up and retreated. And they went and eventually settled in the northern part of the land of Canaan and set up their idols. Not only did they do that, but in the time of Jeroboam, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 12, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king of the northern kingdom, he stripped away most of the tribes and made a kingdom for himself. What did he do? He 
He situated, he established and situated altars, idols, and false priests, priests not from the tribe of Levi, and established a false festival, not written in the law of Moses, for the north, and one of those altars and centers of worship was in the northern tribe of Dan. It would be in that way that Dan, verse 17, behaves like a serpent or a horned snake in the path. Now this horned snake, it merges, it assimilates into the color of the ground in the desert, and it waits for an animal to pass by, hiding in the dirt, and then it pounces on the animal, kills it. It's a poisonous viper. That's what this horned snake is. So if Dan is behaving that way, here he's doing it to the horse and the rider. He's damaging the horse, harming the horse and the rider, which means it's negative. It's, it's bad. Right. This may be, as Jacob foresees the future, the negative future in Dan, why he says, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. As though it's in exasperation, but with hope. I, I, don't, I don't want to see, I won't see, I know I won't see, but thinking about this misery and turmoil and sin, idolatry that's ahead for my descendants, I just long for you, Lord. I long for your eternal salvation. A lament is very fitting for today's times. Yes, yes. And the Lord that he mentions in verse 8 is the Lord Christ. The Lord Christ that he's mentioned in verse 10, 49, 10. And he'll also refer to him in verses 24 to 25 in the blessing on Joseph. Next, we come to verse 19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad's territory is in Joshua 13, 24 to 28. 13, 24 to 28. Raiders shall raid him. This also happened because not only was his in the north, he was in the northeast. He was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And whenever enemies came, usually whether they came from Europe or northern Asia or central Asia, they would come from the northern part and they would have to encounter the tribe of Gad as one of the first territories. So it was very susceptible to foreign attack. And therefore, he's saying here, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. Means, in the end, the remnant of the Gadites who believe in the Lord, they will have the victory because they are in Christ. Verse 20, as for Asher, his food shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher's territory is described in Joshua 19, Joshua 19, 24 to 31, 19, 24 to 31. His territory was also a very fertile territory that yielded lots of oil, wine and wheat. 
oil, wine, and wheat. That's why he says, his food shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. That is, the best of oil, wine, and wheat. Do not kings want that in their palaces? Not only kings of his own nation, but kings of foreign nations. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joshua 19, 32 to 39. Joshua 19, 32 to 39 for his territory, territorial allotment. But also he says, Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. A doe let loose. That's a doe that is free, is not bound, is unrestricted. Goes wherever it wants to go, eats and drinks whatever it wants to eat and drink. In that sense, too, Naphtali enjoyed blessings. But also, he gives beautiful words. How and why would Naphtali give beautiful words? Who showed up in Naphtali? And also Zebulun. Christ did. Matthew Matthew chapter 4. This is a northern territory again. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Matthew 4, verses 12 to 16. Now, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And what did the light say? One more verse, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are words of light, according to that context. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Joseph, 22 to 26. Joseph's tribe, tribal allotment, remember, through Ephraim and Manasseh, that is described in Joshua 16, 1 to 17, 18. 16, 1 to 17, 18. And also 13, chapter 13, 29 to 31. Chapter 13, 29 to 31. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over a wall. First, he describes Joseph as a fruitful man. A fruitful man, and therefore his descendants would be blessed. He is fruitful. This is the way the Bible describes true believers, correct? Yep. Very many pa- passages of the Bible describe this, like John 15, 1 to 11. Um, Faith without works is dead, as James says, James 2, 14 to 26. So there is fruit in the life of the believer, and abundant fruit. However, verse 23 says, The archers bitterly attacked him, and shot at him and harassed him. What does he mean here? Who are the archers? If we take this spiritually, 
What happened in the life of Joseph? Didn't his brothers work against him? Didn't the Ishmaelites or Midianite traders work against him? Didn't the Egyptians work against him? Didn't Potiphar's wife work against him? Didn't the the chief cupbearer work against him in that he forgot and did not appreciate the good that Joseph did for the cupbearer? Didn't they all? Right? Well, in Jeremiah 9... Jeremiah 9, he describes people this way. As as though they are archers who bitterly attack with their bows. Jeremiah 9, 3. And they bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord. Also, verse 8, 9, verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall, verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Joseph was fruitful in the midst of hardship, The hardship of verse 23. Why? Verse 24. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. He maintained an upright, firm, dedicated, unwavering Christian life. He was not a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But he was firm and agile. He knew how to work in the situation with the firmness of faith and the wisdom of faith. To be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Matthew 10, 16. That's the way Joseph was in the midst of his hardships. Remember, while he was a young man especially, between the ages of 17 and 30. How did he have this ability? 24 and 25 explain. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, he had the mighty hands of God helping him. The mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Who is the shepherd? It's Jesus Christ. Yes, the shepherd and the stone are Jesus. We know that he's already mentioned messianic things in verse 10 and also verse 18. And in chapter 48, he speaks of God and the angel of God as his shepherd. Genesis 48, 15. And he blessed Joseph and said... May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads. Right? So the angel, the angel who fought with him and who appeared to him a few times in the book of Genesis, this is the angel whom he calls God here in Genesis 48, 15 and 16. 
And that is the same one who is his shepherd. No surprise in terms of shepherd, right? Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And also John 10, 11 to 6, uh, 10, 11 to 18, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Christ. And also he calls him the stone, the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel. Isaiah, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah 8 and verse 14. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who is he who will be a stone? Verse 13, Christ, yes. Verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. The Lord of hosts of 13 is the same Lord in verse 14, who is a stone and a rock and a snare and a trap. Isaiah 28, 16. 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame. Psalm 118, Psalm 118 and verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 118 and verse 22. These verses are put together in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Which one? Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, which is Psalm 118.22. And, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which comes from Isaiah 8.14. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. Christ is the stone of Israel and a cornerstone. 25. 25. From the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. These blessings all originate from God in heaven. He is our helper. He is the stone of help, right? The Ebenezer. He is our helper and he will 
be the, and is the source of our blessings. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1.17. These blessings are both material and spiritual, material and spiritual that come from God. And in Jacob's case, he says that I have had more of these than my ancestors. If he means Abraham and Isaac, that's certainly the case with the children and the number of grandchildren, correct? And the furtherance of the promises of God in the land of Egypt and what God is revealing to him to be true with his sons in the land of Canaan, right? All of these coming from God. And why is it that Joseph is crowned and distinguished among his brothers because of Joseph's godliness. That was very clear since we've been studying Genesis 37. From 37 through 50, we will see the godliness of Joseph. 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. Benjamin's tribe... Tribal allotment is in Joshua 18, 11 to 28. 18, 11 to 28. And by the way, Benjamin owned a part of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was partly of the tribe of Judah and partly of the tribe of Benjamin. It's no accident, therefore, that those were the two sources of the kings. At least Saul was from Benjamin, and then David and his dynasty from Judah. And then David establishes Jerusalem as the capital. Well, Benjamin, wasn't he the youngest? And wasn't he the, the youngest and innocent one? Wasn't he the one that Jacob um, did not want to perish, like he thought Joseph had perished? And Simeon was held as a prisoner, right? But he, he has, has more affinity to Joseph and Benjamin, and here, especially Benjamin, because he's the only one left, and these two were the sons of Rachel, correct? But the way Benjamin's described here makes it sound like he is ravenous and vicious. He gets what he wants, which is true. If you study in the book of Judges, there are several incidents in the book of Judges that describe the tribe of Benjamin as becoming a very vicious and ravenous tribe. Especially the last three chapters, Judges 19, 20, and 21, that's the way they behave. They were the ones that sought to violate the traveling Levite and then ended up raping and murdering his concubine and ended up causing a civil war. Yep. They, had, they were insatiable in the morning and in the evening. All day long, it says, devours the prey in the morning and in the evening he divides the spoil. Insatiable, evil appetite. Lastly, verses 28 to 33. After the blessing appropriate to each one, it says in 29, 
Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought, along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. He charges Joseph to do so, and he does so in the next chapter. Once he dies, it says in verses 12 and 13, 50, 12, And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought, along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. This legitimate, legal, purchased property, we note that the Bible emphasizes that point, that they didn't steal it, right? They didn't steal this land. They purchased it in a valid way. This was in Genesis 23, because it was necessary to bury Sarah there. Genesis 23, this is when this transaction took place. It's a valid piece of property, And he wants to be buried where his ancestors are buried. Why? After all, does it matter where you die and where you are buried? Because after you're dead and buried, what does it matter to you? You're no more on the earth. It matters in the Bible because the land of Canaan was a symbol of heaven. It was a symbol of heaven and they looked forward to the day of resurrection where they would live in their resurrected body in heaven with the Lord forever. And to emphasize this fact that this hope was in him, he says, I want to be buried there. And even Joseph wanted to be buried there and was buried there by Moses later. So that's the reason for that place. Burial in Canaan because it's a symbol of heaven and also burial and and not cremation. Why? Because resurrection is in the future, not obliteration. Resurrection, not annihilation. Religions and people who think the world to come is a world of extinction, they typically cremate their dead. But in the Bible... Whoever is burned is burned because of sin. It's a curse on the person. That's typically what happens. But in the Bible, those of faith bury their dead unless they are punishing a criminal who deserves to be burned. One more note. 29 and 33 say, Gathered to my people. Gathered to his people. Though his body was to be buried, his soul was to go in the world to come, in the afterlife, to be with his redeemed people. This is one of the many indications of belief in the afterlife in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is often portrayed as a testament that only knows and cares about this physical world, but that's not true. We have seen here 
that he believed in Christ. He believed in redemption in Christ. He put his hope in Christ and salvation in Christ. He calls him the shepherd and stone of Israel. Right? And so he was looking forward to being with his people who were redeemed in the world to come. That's the way in which he was to be gathered. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.